0: Hello everyone and welcome back to our podcast, our Sabbath School from Home podcast. Now we have had some comments to the effect it's a little unusual to to call this podcast a Sabbath School podcast if we're not running through the quarterly and our reason for this is I guess a selfish one. Uh, we just feel that in a time of crisis and a time of trouble that the Psalms speak to us. We hope they do to you too. Obviously there's many resources around and, and Lots of churches and lots of groups are, are putting discussions together on the quarterly as well. But please enjoy this discussion. Uh, we welcome you to take part. If you have any thoughts about previous week's discussions or this week's discussion, then please email them to us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. As, uh, as last week, I'm joined by Lachlan and Ken. Now, Locke, I think we had some comments from our listeners on the last couple of weeks discussion.
1: Yeah, we did. We we got a couple of emails and there's some really really good thoughts and these might keep us going for for a little while, but that's going to be fantastic. So, firstly, Ben from New South Wales wrote a great email with a with a couple of interesting comments, mostly addressing our questions posed at the end of the last episode. Although he did have a couple of interesting things that he wa- that he wanted to discuss. Firstly, around the theme of God answering our prayers in the day that we pray it, which was something that the psalmist wrote in Psalm 138, and we discussed at length last episode. Ben pointed out that there's, there's some role that context takes in all of this, in our evaluation of this, and he pointed to the record of one of Ellen White's visions, where she experienced a vision of being in heaven And meeting some people who had died and who came up and wanted to know what had happened on earth after they'd died. You know, what sort of trials had they been through? And Ellen White writes, We tried to call up our greatest trials, but they looked so small compared with the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that surrounded us that we could not speak them out. That's from early writings. And it, it speaks, I think, really, really nicely to this idea that our assessment of our troubles and our whole evaluation of whether God answered them in a timely manner depends to a, a large degree on the context where we are trying to evaluate that from.
0: Yeah, Ben also pointed out that um, it, it is easy to, to criticise that uh, it sometimes feels like God's deliverances don't happen as soon as they ought. It's also the case that his harsh judgments don't always get delivered on schedule either he he pointed out that in genesis god tells adam and eve that at the time of eating that very day they will die if they eat the fruit which doesn't happen
1: yeah i mean perhaps in a sense something does change for them on that day obviously but but the the bare reading of the of the situation is that no they they do not in fact die on that day Ben also thought of 2 Peter 3.8, where God is described as not being particularly fussed about timing details. This is the verse for, uh, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. I think the message here is fairly consistent. There are lots of places throughout the Bible where time seems to be far less important or far less rigid from God's perspective. Than it is from ours. And even for us as humans, the time element is less rigid and important when we have the benefit of of looking back retrospectively. We did discuss that a bit last episode, and Ben drew drew attention to that.
0: It reminds me of a cartoon like I once saw uh, where there's a man talking to God. He's on the top of a mountain and he's talking to a cloud, and God is answering him. And he says, uh, Lord, is it true that to you uh, a day is like a thousand years? God says, yes, yes, it's true. And the man says, does that mean, Lord, that it, it's true that to you, a penny is to you just like a thousand million dollars? And God says, yes, yeah, that's true. And he gets a super crafty look in his face and he says, well, God, can, can I have a penny? And God says, sure, I'll give it to you tomorrow. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things, when you're looking at time as well and we tend to judge god on whether he answers today in the day and we don't like that waiting and yet for ourselves we prefer not to have that judgment we prefer not to be based on time and the consequences of our action but rather to be based on our good intentions even if they weren't fulfilled and in any event for how long do we expect that the consequences of our actions will be taken into account? Jonathan Sachs, in his book Morality, a new book of his, talks about this extensively um, in his chapter on time and consequences. For how long do we expect that we ought be held accountable or be excused from the consequences of, of what we do? Is it just a short time or... Are we responsible for only the immediate consequences or for ones a long way into the future? And we don't like the fact that our consequences have significant impact or our actions have significant consequences for other people. The fact that we live in the culture that we live in, in the Western society that we live in, immediately means that we are part of a system that has... Dramatic consequences uh, for people in other parts of the world. Are we to be held responsible for that? Uh, And over what time frame are we we to be held responsible for it? If we are prepared to let ourselves off the hook by the standard with which you judge, you will be judged. Why do we hold God to such a significantly higher standard? Perhaps because He's infinite and omniscient.
0: But that's the thing, Kenneth infinite and omniscient, then it would be very surprising indeed if he did everything according to our desires because we're not. So if, if you do believe that there's a God superior in wisdom and power and knowledge, then you are accepting sort of from the outset that perhaps a very large proportion of things that you're asking for won't happen.
2: And be very grateful for that. Yeah. I mean, for a start, I, I know that most of the time, well, perhaps not most of the time, uh, but very often the things that I want are not the things that will, in the end, or even perhaps now, be best for me.
0: Yeah. Uh, there's a quote, I can't remember who it's attributed to, uh, but there's a quote to the effect that uh, those whom God wants to punish, he, he first starts the punishment by answering their prayers.
2: And then there's the the movie Bruce Almighty, which, yes, which has... Yes,
0: where he answers yes to all. Yes,
2: he just clicks yes to everyone.
0: Yeah. Another comment that Ben made, which I thought was really good, was about the fact that our hymn book doesn't resemble the Psalms in in tone. Or at least, I mean, the Psalms have happy Psalms. We're going to look at one of them today. But uh, there's a greater emotional spectrum represented in the Psalms than in our hymn book. And he observes that there is a wider cultural difference. Most of the hymns in our hymn book, he says, come from a, a time where people were much more private, you know, even up until the 1950s, television programs couldn't display bathrooms. People are just more reserved. And it's certainly true that the Jewish culture is is definitely much more expressive than some. And presumably the culture of the, the ancient Hebrews, very much so, based on the Psalms. Uh, and he, he pulls out one or two hymns that are in our hymn book that do provide some balance. Uh, one of them is Until Then. Uh, a whole psalm about the fact that things at the moment don't live up to what's been promised to us. And another one of the psalms he pulled up was Psalm 488, which has a progression of things that we've prayed for. Um, At first I prayed for light, and in verse 2 it says, and next I prayed for strength. And in verse 3 it says, and then I prayed for, I asked for faith. And then the last one says, but now I pray for love. And light and strength and faith are opened everywhere, but God waited patiently until I prayed the latter prayer, which I think is a fairly nuanced idea.
1: Mm, that is interesting. Ben takes that further, with that observation, which is powerful, and, and suggests that maybe our contemporary era in the 21st century is a little bit more open and transparent about some of these things than perhaps our, our great-grandparents or our grandparents' generations culturally were. And um, I'm just going to read this this paragraph that Ben wrote. I really like this as an example of uh, a more contemporary song that's perhaps slightly like the Psalms. Ben writes, Laura Story wrote a song back in 2011 called Blessings after her husband, Martin, was diagnosed with a brain tumour. Laura asked, Why didn't you just fix it, God? You're all-powerful and all-loving. Just fix it. Later, after mentioning her desire to return to a normal life, her sister said, you know, I think the detour is actually the road. The song Blessings is not much more than a whole bunch of questions Laura had for God during that hard time, strung together without any, many answers and put to music. Because that song became so popular, she wrote a little book called What If Your Blessings Come Through Raindrops, and a few years later, a bigger one called When God Doesn't Fix It, which both explore those questions a little more thoroughly. So that's what Ben wrote about that song. I've had a listen to the song, which I did not know. Thanks, Ben. Great suggestion. And I think we'll share a link to it in the show notes to this podcast.
0: Yeah, that's very good. A lot of the Psalms in the Bible and and this song written by Laura Story do come out of moments of personal trial and anguish. And this leads to another comment we received from Narelle. And Narelle uh, pointed out that a lot of the expressions, even within the Psalms, express a an experience possibly unique at that time to the psalmist. Not always, I guess, in Psalm 137 that we looked at. uh, It seems to be a more universal trial. But, you know, not everyone is going through trial and hardship. And is it actually appropriate to include in worship service songs about doubt, songs about difficulty, songs about prayers that haven't been answered, if, if that's not the experience of other people in the congregation?
1: I think this is an interesting question because i think that the there is a certain obvious and valid sense in which the answer is yes it's probably important uh, some of these songs are probably the sorts of things that are so, sung more privately but then the inverse of that question should also potentially be asked is it appropriate in a congregational communal setting to only sing songs of joy thankfulness, positivity, when, I would argue, it's probably quite likely there are at least some people participating in that congregation who are not experiencing life at that moment in such glowing positivity.
2: God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Sometimes it might feel like today he's not.
1: Yeah. And I think that... so. We have to be quite careful, don't we, when we are in community, which is something we're all missing to some degree at the moment with our with our isolation. But when we are in community, it's, it's a pretty important thing to acknowledge that everyone's coming with different sort of spaces, different mindsets, different experiences, different contexts. I think we're often pretty good at acknowledging people who are mourning after the loss of a loved one or a family member. We tend to be quite a accommodating for that quite understanding but that's probably the most valid visible and universal experience of of life not being so positive there are so many other experiences of life not being positive whether it may be related to depression and mental health or just simply stress or i mean so many other things it's probably hard to hard to even imagine some of them very well and they can be really difficult for us to understand, for us to be accommodating of in in worship.
0: Yeah, we do find it hard to acknowledge, you know, people's pain sometimes. But of course, Norrell's right. Not everyone is going through pain, and not everyone has the same disposition. I mean, some people, uh, if you are feeling upset, really long to go and hear, you know, a song of hope and joy. Uh, that's what speaks to them in that moment, and perhaps the difference between feeling you know, encouraged and uplifted or feeling ostracised and left out may simply come down to different personalities.
1: I guess, fairly broadly in human experience, we rarely come together to express our lowness, I guess, basically out of respect for the fact that that sort of activity tends to bring other people down, and that, that doesn't seem very productive. Even the way we typically try and do funerals, which are, which are by definition, sad and sort of low points there's all sorts of ways we talk about these things a celebration of someone's life and thankfulness for the for the way their life impacted on ours all of these sorts of things so I do suspect that there may be something deep and a little bit valid in the idea that there's a sort of culturally defined boundary of what is appropriate and what 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 is appropriate for that public context and what is probably best navigated as a slightly more private expression. And and it may well be that some of these themes of being angry at God, certainly we need support through those experiences, but they may not be the things that are best expressed in the settings where we use worship songs.
0: Yeah, but you would, you would still have for some balance, I think. Uh, so I guess it comes down to proportion. Maybe this is something that people could provide an insight on. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I suspect to dwell on the negative is unproductive, but to to never acknowledge it is probably unproductive. What proportion of the Psalms have a negative tone? It's probably close to 50%. Maybe there's some cultural differences. I know that my wife had uh, some friends who were adopted into an Australian family at quite an old age. They have clear memories of growing up in Africa, and they were really put out at the first funeral they went to in australia because there was no one sc- crying and the point of a funeral is that you express all the grief and you wail and you show how much that person meant to you by shows of distress and then you get over it and move on with your life
1: well uh if we're looking for biblical models that's probably closer to the sort of thing we read of in the bible there was another comment that Narelle made uh, specifically about our discussion last episode of Psalm 138. It really jumped out at me because it's a, it's a fascinating uh, twist on, on a phrase that we did, in fact, discuss. But I think we need to go back and discuss it again because this idea is, is so interesting. Narelle is particularly interested in verse 6 of Psalm 138, where it says that God regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar... And Cam, I think you discussed this a little bit, and we we all agree that the Bible fairly consistently shows God paying attention to
0: the lonely. Uh, yes, Norrell brings out an extra dimension though, because this verse is contrasts, as in other places in the Bible, it contrasts God's treatment of the proud from the humble. And it says that in this in the verse we discussed that the haughty he knows from afar. And the suggestion, the contrast between the Haughty and the lowly, is he knows both of them, but the haughty one he knows from afar. And Narelle's question was Is the from afar referring to God's choice, or is it the haughty's choice? Is it the proud, the person who is proud? Is it, is it their choice that God is respecting? I found that question really
1: stimulating because we hadn't sort of thought in those terms when we were discussing that verse.
2: Sometimes it's more comfortable to keep God at a distance and he'll respect that.
1: I find the, the idea of God respecting our choice and of the ability of humans to make free choices, I find that to be a fairly fundamental idea. That's a very, a very valuable, I guess, philosophical approach to the world that, that I find. The idea that humans have freedom as, to act as agents and, and have this sort of choice we are free to choose and we are not forced one way or the other. We are not robots, that, that whole kind of thing. And thinking of it from that perspective, this is an interesting way to put it. The haughty God knows from afar, well, they may well have chosen that and God is respecting it.
0: It also uh, highlights perhaps one mechanism or justification, perhaps more than mechanism, for prayer. If God genuinely does respect the free will he's given us, and I'd like to have a discussion on another week about free will because I've had some very interesting discussions with colleagues at work on the the subject. If God respects the free will that we have, then asking God, exercising that will in prayer and saying, God, I want you involved in my life, in one sense removes some sort of self-imposed restrictions from God we're letting him off the leash, so as to speak.
2: My own experience is that I tend to keep him on a pretty tight leash. I try to run the universe the way I want it run, and I seek his assistance in doing that. It's rarer, although more ideal, that I would seek to participate in the way that he might want to run the universe. I, I like the idea that God knows both. And I'm reminded of Jesus when the question of who, who can make it into the kingdom, if not the rich, said, well, it's, you know, it's more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and you can talk about what that means all you like. But Jesus made it quite clear that uh, uh, that was taken to be impossible. Because the next thing that he says is that that with God all things are possible. So that if we're even the proud and the haughty known by God is a wonderful impossibility made possible.
1: Yeah, well I'm just going back and and reading again the comment that Narelle made and there is an interesting thing there because she points out it says in the verse that God knows the haughty uh, from afar. And Narelle wonders, she says it's interesting that it says God knows them. And she wonders if that might mean they just don't know it.
0: Well, it's almost certainly the case also, Locke. God knows us. It is, must be the case that we don't know ourselves very well, particularly the haughty. Uh, there is an element, uh, you know, one of the ingredients of pride is self-deception. I guess it's it's possible to be proud and correct, but that's probably pretty rare. But God knows them. God actually knows who they are and, and what they are.
2: For all of the puffing up and the preening that might happen, even for the haughty, I suspect that there aren't too many who've counted the hairs on their head, and yet God knows even that.
0: Well, we're very glad to have the comments that have come in, and we would encourage anyone, we're interested to know if this discussion is stimulating or interesting or useful to people. And we'd encourage you to continue uh, feeding comments through and to continue feeding suggestions on psalms that we should study. Uh, Interesting things that have caught your interest, either you've found them very uplifting or perhaps you've found them very difficult. And I, I was on the phone this week with one of my good friends, Justin, who lives in Queensland, and he suggested that we look at Psalm 91. And really, having read through it, I've realised this psalm is possibly a bit of a, an elephant in the room, in the sense we, we really should have addressed this one a while ago. But having just spoken about the importance of prayer, uh, Locke, do you want to start our discussion with a prayer?
1: God, we come to you. We enjoy this time to think on you, to align our spirits with your spirit, and we ask your blessing as we do so. Amen.
0: Now, I'll start reading Psalm 91. I'm reading the NIV. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day.
2: Or the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent.
1: And I'm going to finish this from the New Living Translation. For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation.
0: Now, this psalm is actually one of the first passages of Bible that I memorised. I've since forgotten it, to my shame. But uh, when I was in grade one in uh, Mrs Cook's class, we sang the whole psalm. And it's a very positive psalm.
2: I suspect if we played the music, Cam, you'd remember it again.
0: I think so. I think so. Um, It gives me some unease. Locke, and can, can you imagine in this, what, what in this psalm gives me unease? Does it give it either of you unease?
2: <laughs> well, it, frankly, and this says more, I suspect, about my picture of God than it says about God, the sense that there's this complete assurance of the absence of any harm seems not to match closely the experience of many. I have to say in my own life, I've not experienced a great deal of harm and suffering. And so perhaps in that sense, I'm not qualified to speak about how that assurance might work. But I certainly see many examples where it looks to me like there's no assurance that in fact that will be the case. In the world as we experience it now. I'm reminded of an um, exchange I saw on a, an Instagram account that I follow uh, for a Christian uh, who does CrossFit in the US um, and he put a comment on there and said something to the effect of COVID-19, you know, it's been fun but we've had enough. And uh, of course, as you might expect, one of the people responded and said, uh, it's not been fun. My grandma died and led to an embarrassing uh, retraction. We see those sort of experiences. Where, Where is God in those sort of things? And yet there is a great confidence expressed. So there's the well, discomfort that I feel.
0: Well, there's an, let me add to that discomfort, Ken. I agree with you that the surety of this is difficult. I, I, I looked up a commentary. I looked for a commentary, and there was an apologist of some description online who was saying... This psalm, everyone levels critiques at this psalm, but it's it's totally naive to suppose that this psalm is offering blanket assurance. In the context of Scripture, it's very clear that God doesn't solve all problems all the time. What this psalm is saying is that God has the capacity to. Now, I don't think that is what the psalm is saying. I think the psalm says, surely he will save you from the foulest snare. Secondly, if he does have the capacity and he's not doing it, I don't think that solves any problems anyway. And to get back to your anecdote, is that, that's my difficulty with the, with the assurance in this psalm. Can this psalm acknowledges that many people are, are die when they struck with the pestilence, but to what category do those people belong? We discover that in verse 8, that the people who suffer in this way apparently belong to the wicked.
1: Yeah, I was going to pick something up like this as well. It depends a little bit which translation you're looking at. But down in verse 14, 15, and 16, uh, it seems to imply if you hold fast to God in love, if you trust God, then God will be with you and will satisfy you with a long life. And the uh-huh. the raw logical implication of that is if you do not get a long satisfying life then you have not been holding fast to God in love and that is something which i every now and again do encounter people not necessarily saying quite so starkly but almost bordering on saying you know are oh, you you know you you just need more faith and then your prayer, prayer for healing could be answered or you you know and it always riles me up so much because it's just empirically observationally cannot be the way the world is. And I say that on the basis not having not of having experienced huge amounts of, of suffering at the hands of serpents or lions or the wicked or whatever it may be, but just observing the world. It, I think anyone can honestly sit and think and find themselves agreeing more readily with the phrase, those whom God loves die young. You know? Yeah,
0: which <laughs> it, is quoted by sir humphrey appleby in yes minister where they're talking about the archbishop of canterbury who's getting very old (laughs) um, in this fictional account and they're 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 waiting for him to to move on so that they can pick his successor but he's lingering and sir humphrey makes the observation that presumably god is not too anxious for him to join him (laughs) so he's letting him linger on earth for a bit longer so yes i do think that that it's quite difficult reconciling that sentiment, the idea that if you have enough faith, things will go right.
1: I mean, you know, I, I suspect we all could, and I suspect anyone listening could as well, th- not have to wander very far through their memory or their family networks or their friends to come up with fairly stark, fairly vivid, close-to-home instances of where it just does not seem that life has been experienced in this way
2: and so does that mean then if for he will deliver you from the snares of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence or I think Cam in your translation it was surely in, in this translation it's for he will do that so the basis of my trust in God is because he will deliver me from the snare of the fowler and if he does not ought my trust in God therefore be diminished or removed
1: yeah that's interesting because I think um, again, you hear a lot more commonly people speaking retrospectively, uh, not quite so often during the moment, but retrospectively speaking of the ways in which some of the more difficult experiences of their lives caused their faith in God and their trust in God to strengthen. Almost as if they found they had no nothing else trustworthy in their life and God was the only thing of substance to trust in. I have, to, I have to say I'm troubled by some of the logical implications of this psalm, but then I admit, maybe the author wasn't a mathematician. And it is vaguely possible that some of what we're doing with technical dissection of these phrases may not be what the author had in mind.
2: And indeed, Jesus himself dealt with this psalm, didn't he? Particularly verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And I think it was in Luke chapter 4.
0: There are not many passages of the Bible that the devil is quoted to have used.
2: And uh, this, is, this is one of them. Uh, on the temptation of Jesus, the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus rebukes him for his, I think, presumptuousness. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And my my question of Jesus is, well, why not? Isn't that specifically what he invited in that psalm?
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, Jesus also deals with this question. I mean, Jesus flat out contradicts this concept that bad things happen to the wicked explicitly. He, he meets it head on, m- multiple occasions. Who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? No, you've got the wrong end. This this has happened so that God will be glorified. Or I'm looking now at the passage in Luke 13, where Christ says, do you, do you think that all the Galileans were worse than this A whole bunch of Galileans had, had died? Uh, do you think they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too Will all perish. So, Jesus expressly tells us to associate ourselves in terms of our moral standing with people who have undergone hardship. So, when we look at the people suffering, the 10,000 who die by right handed, Christ explicitly says this is not, c- cannot reliably be ascribed as God's punishment on the wicked. You, you are one of them.
1: Now, there's one other way that we could take this psalm um, that would also cause me a little bit of trouble. One way of reading this psalm would be to say, ah, but it's not speaking literally of things that happen in this world. It's figuratively speaking of the true life and death scenario of salvation versus destruction. And so when it says that you will live a long life and experience salvation, maybe even someone who is faithful to God in this life but dies young, the living the long life gets to happen to them in eternity, in the resurrection experience. I can see some interest in maybe going that direction but I do have some caution there because I find it very troubling whenever whenever Christians move to so vastly minimize the experience of life in this world that seems fair enough to do if your life is going reasonably fine but There are so many ways that such suffering can be experienced in this life that to simply brush it aside and say, oh, well, that all is irrelevant in the context of eternity is at least very heartless. And I suspect it's actually a little bit out of keeping with the character of God revealed in Jesus. Jesus was quite interested in alleviating suffering in the here and now as well as trying to remind people to yearn for salvation in the yet to come.
2: Yes, I'm, I'm troubled again in response to that, Locke, with the suggestion that Cam made earlier that, well, you know, God is omniscient and so we can trust that it works together for good. How does one reconcile that concept with the one that your, are with the discomfort that you're feeling about the interpretation of the psalm in that way? Maybe I've misrepresented what Cam said.
0: I've got a Perhaps a response to that and also a comment on, on your observation, on that an emphasis on things of on this earth being inconsequential has led to some fairly uh, appalling actions on the part of the Christian Church. And I'm reminded of the episode in one of the Crusades where a representative of the Pope was talking to the military commander and they were, I think, besieging Bazir i don't know how to say it um a a town in europe and uh the military commander asked for instruction and the abbot said go in and kill them all the lord knows his own so it doesn't matter if you kill some innocent people right because the only thing that is of consequence is the life hereafter and they'll they'll go to heaven so it's fine so there is a danger in, in placing too much emphasis on you know heaven and not paying attention to what's happening down here now, Ken, I've forgotten the other point that I meant to say. What what was I responding to you about?
2: You were saying God's omniscience and that you know, we can't see it all. Uh, he can, so we can trust him for it.
0: Yes. Well, regarding God's omniscience, it's all very well to say he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful, so it's not clear why some people have an easy life and some people have a hard life, when presumably that seems very unjust. I have some elderly relatives at the moment who are very frustrated at getting old and I think that you know people who are getting old or if people can think of their parents and grandparents who are getting old there's something very appalling about the loss of dignity that's not quite the right word Um, you know my nana is very upset because she really wants to help people she spent her life helping people being an agent for good and she's in the frustrating position of having to be helped It's not clear that that those who get let off a life of hardship do actually get let off. Indeed. It's easy for us to say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, so-and-so had it tough and -and so-and-so had it easy, but we don't know what is in store in the future. Or all of us, even the people who, you know, even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, died again. And his second death must have been tragic. There must have been weeping and sorrow and pain. And every person that enjoyed a miraculous deliverance in the Bible is dead. That's a universal fact. So that's a kind of realist
1: critique. It's saying that's what the way the world really is. What then do we do with this? Um, do we find ways to read it slightly differently? One option is we just get out some whiteout and we fix our Bibles. <laughs> is, that, is that what we're saying?
2: There'd be lots of other things that I could white out as well. Uh, with uh, great utility
0: (laughs) the first thing you'd have to wipe out is the verse in revelation that says don't wipe things out oh okay well (laughs) incidentally incidentally i did once see a, a compressed new testament it was it was put together for the purpose of evangelism it probably had excerpts from books that would you would give to a new believer and I looked at it with interest and discovered that the verse in Revelation that says not to add or subtract anything had been removed. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they did it first, Cam, like you
1: suggest. And then then the rest of it was easy. <laughs> you got carte blanche then. I find something really interesting here. Only two weeks ago, we were looking at a psalm that seemed a little too dark, a little too violent to for our comfort levels in the Bible. And here's one which is... It's so positive. We're sort of feeling uncomfortable and uneasy again, but for different reasons. Are we just really hard to please? Come on. (laughs) I'm thinking of so many people in the world who live a life that is really, really rough, and not just people currently, but throughout almost all of human history, of course. Life is tough. It would seem weird to them, wouldn't it, to have us... Who, who have mostly admitted that our lives have gone pretty well, saying, oh, we're just having a bit of difficulty with the Bible chapter that says things will go really well.
2: And so maybe it's worthwhile looking at this psalm through their eyes.
0: Well, who was the psalm written by? It doesn't say. But the preceding psalm was written by Moses. And apparently, I was reading, I got this, you know, I got this off the internet, so it's obviously right. Uh, <laughs> But apparently, there is a school of thought that suggests authors may not necessarily be reintroduced in the Psalms. It's a Psalm of Moses in Psalm 90, and perhaps we could presume some people do. They think it's possible that he wrote Psalm 91 as well. It doesn't really matter so much whether it is Moses, or perhaps it's David, um, or perhaps some of the other authors in the Psalms. It wouldn't be fair to say that they were, you know, the sort of first world problem focused, you know, rich affluent, comfortable, people out of touch with the everyday person's experience. I mean, Moses didn't have an easy life. I'm
1: really fascinated that that you've talked about Moses, because what that has done instantly has changed my eyes as I look at a couple of these verses. Listen to these ones. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. Verse 5, you will not fear the terror of the night. 6. Nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side. Surely, if you start to think of the ten plagues of the Exodus story, darkness, pestilence, uh, thousands falling, and there could be so many things in mind about that, but think of the Egyptian army being swallowed by the waters. No evil should be allowed to befall you. No plague Come near your tent. That's verse 10. Right there. There it is. A key word of plague. I don't know. It doesn't have to be Moses and the Exodus, does it? But suddenly I'm finding myself saying, I wonder if this psalm is speaking a little bit more to specific circumstances, to a a particular event. And that why we the one of the reasons we're having so much trouble with it is that we are automatically reading it as being a kind of proclamation of a general statement, and we're saying we just can't really see that matching up with our observation of the world
2: a, a little like our discussion last week in psalm one hundred and thirty eight was there something in particular that David was praising God for at that time? Did he have something in particular in mind, and so if if you look at it in that way with Moses, and I have to say. It feels a little better to me to think of Moses praising God for the rescue of the children of Israel from the oppression of the Egyptians than it does simply enabling David to kill off his thousands and ten thousands.
0: There is another perspective I've been thinking of, which I might run past you and see what you think. We know that Bible writers employed hyperbole to say that someone has exaggerated a point does not let you dismiss it when you exaggerate you signify by using something that is big and dramatic which is not true something that is big and dramatic that is true so i'm trying to think of an example of hyperbole you say uh, you say to your fiance you say i would i would walk a thousand miles to come and see you well you've, you probably wouldn't you'd probably catch a bus there's a factual incorrectness there but you can't just then your fiance wouldn't say well i don't think you're being factually correct so you're lying to me how terrible how awful the fiance understands the sentiment and the sentiment that the person you've you've used a phrase that's big and dramatic because you're trying to describe something that's genuinely big and dramatic so when this psalmist is outlining qualities of god you know god's a god of deliverance God is a God who responds to those who love him. The aspects of God's character, if you look at this as an essay on God's character, is it inaccurate?
1: Mm, I like that, Cam, actually.
2: So there's a few things I might respond to in that. The first is, if God is who we say he is, might we not be excused for reading this as literally as we have sought to? He is, in fact, God. And if hyperbole could ever be accurate surely it would be accurate in respect of the god of the universe on the other hand perhaps the justification lies as uncomfortable as it might be and i share your discomfort with this lock in some ways but perhaps the answer does lie in the fact that this psalm if it is to be true must be seen as true in the context of eternity and not just in the context of this world. And that, I think, is something that Paul would be quite comfortable with uh, when he says, if the resurrection didn't happen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then neither will we. And although I, again, struggle to agree with him on this, we're more full uh, than anyone. So it's not wrong to view this psalm as being right in the context of the eternal god and eternal life
0: yeah i might respond to that one ken please because i think it is possible to have knowledge of god's character and then to acknowledge that that knowledge of his character does not give us it doesn't give us the right to presume to know how he will act i think of the story of lazarus that we talked about last week the other passage which i think Really provides a good perspective is the three worthies talking to Nebuchadnezzar because they don't assume to know how he will act, but they are very clear about what sort of God he is. Our God can save us from your hand, but it doesn't matter whether he will or not, we won't worship your idol. And I think that that's that they are, in one sense, affirming Psalms 91, but they're basically saying. Our knowledge of his character is such that if he doesn't step in it, it's fine.
2: Mm. And indeed, if you look at the scripture, much of what God said to do, the way he said to behave and the consequences for it uh, don't really seem like good advice often. I'm thinking of Hosea. And indeed, you can even read Samson in the same way uh, to suggest that uh, uh, God told him to go out and marry a Philistine uh, uh, wife. Uh, there are a whole lot of other um, uh, passages in the Scripture where, uh, not the least, the Beatitudes, uh, where one would think, "Okay, well, it's perhaps not very good advice for getting ahead in the world," uh, and yet it is God's way and. He will see it all work out for good in the end. And Cam, I really liked the fact that in your response you said, we ought not presume to know how God would act. And indeed, that was the very response that Jesus gave to the devil, quoting this psalm.
0: Yes, yeah.
2: When you look at the structure of the psalm, it's quite interesting because verses 1 to 13 are speaking to Uh, the people um, who uh, the author is addressing and speaking about what God is like uh, to those people. Verses 14 to 16 are God himself speaking. They're his, if you like, affirmation of the uh, statements that have been made about his character. Uh, He's agreeing, this is what I will do.
0: There's a lot here left to discuss. Please send us your thoughts, either on Psalm uh, 91 or in any of the previous episodes. We're deliberately picking psalms uh, that give a, a sort of a broader picture. And perhaps, perhaps that's the intent of the person who assembled these into one book, is that no one psalm contains the full picture on its own. We'd be interested to know if you have a psalm you'd like us to read, or to discuss, if you have any thoughts about what psalms bring you comfort. Or what Psalms challenge you and what they speak to you about during these difficult times with the coronavirus crisis. So, if you want to send us your thoughts, the email address is sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we'd love to hear from you.